The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Please turn with me to Psalm 90. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few Bibles that are available. It would help you this morning to follow in a Bible. I guess you could manage with your phone or device if you have to, but sometimes it helps to be able to just see what's going on around a passage. So we encourage using an analog Bible still in these digital days. We, as Sheldon pointed out, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark since we resumed at the beginning of June. Uh, And we're planning a break in the next couple of weeks just to give our attention to a few other things. But in the last many days... With the anxiety that has come with the spike in COVID-19 cases locally and the agitation that has come with the upcoming election, my desire for you, my desire for us, is for our hearts to be anchored securely in God's Word in these uncertain times. So I have a question for you. Have you ever thought much about water? Yes, water. It might seem like an unusual question. Uh, No, not just when you're really thirsty or when you're thinking of the beach. Have you ever thought much about water? I would be surprised and I wouldn't think any less of you if you had never given much thought to this liquid that shapes and sustains our very lives. Yet water is a wonder. Chemists will tell you that it's the strangest of liquids with at least 66 properties that differ from other liquids. It It just doesn't behave how it's supposed to behave. I, 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 it, I feel cheated now because I did chemistry up to CXC and nobody pointed out to me how strange and mysterious and amazing water is. There's a quirky and brilliant nature documentary series entitled The Riot and the Dance, which explores the wonders around us as created things that point to their creator. One episode focuses on water. And these are words from its opening monologue. And I'm going to try not to do too much movie voice, despite the temptation. Do it? Do it. No, we do do boost up our own here during preaching? (laughs) All right. Okay. So this is the opening monologue. Water. Two hydrogen atoms plus one oxygen atom linked together to form one of the strangest, most pervasive, most essential substances on this planet. This liquid refreshes... This liquid destroys. When pressurized, it can cut through slabs of stone like a child's finger through cake. It flies. It falls. It freezes. It can be as still and beautiful as heaven's mirror. It can rage, terrifying even the most powerful nations. It cuts canyons and smashes cities. It soothes a dry mouth. Water is a paradox. It is simple yet complicated, delicate yet dangerous. And I'm convinced that in it, God, the creator of all things, has given us a picture of himself. This morning we're going to spend our time exploring Psalm 90. And one of the most notable features of this psalm is paradox. We're going to meet the God who is dependable yet dangerous, simple yet complicated. What are we to do with a God like this? In addition to God's paradoxical nature, Psalm 90 also paints in broad contrasting hues the difference between the creator God and mortal men. 
between the eternal and the fleeting. And it laments our sin and the wrath it rightfully attracts. But this psalm is not just a mournful song. It is, paradoxically enough, a hopeful one. And this is well suited for this cultural moment. So, what instruction does it offer to us? This psalm teaches us to see our frailty and sinfulness in light of the everlasting God, yet invites us to turn to Him for wisdom, restoration, and refuge. Let me say that again for you. This psalm teaches us to see our frailty and sinfulness in light of the everlasting God, yet invites us to turn to Him for wisdom, restoration, and refuge. This song responds to the experience of suffering with a communal lament, yet one which instructs us about God and ourselves and invites us to cry out to Him. So let me read for you Psalm 90. This is God's holy word given to us to give us words to speak back to Him. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many, for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This song can be broken up into four movements. And I spent some time trying to come up with summative titles for each, but in the end I decided that it would probably serve you best my, by my adding less than more to what's already a substantial psalm. So we're running with some one-word titles for each of the movements to help us keep our bearings in this journey. So the first movement is refuge. That's verses 1 and 2. Then we move to recognition, verses 3 through 6. Wrath, verses 7 
to 11, and then requests, verses 12 to 17. So those words will be our anchors. But if we're going to hear this song clearly and join in, we'll need to get our bearings. That's because the Psalms are not a random collection or a random compilation of worship songs. They have been carefully arranged, and the collection as a whole has a storyline that moves us through five books, through five groupings. If you look in your Bibles just above the chapter number identifying this psalm, you'll see that Psalm 90 is the introductory psalm in book 4. So it's looking back at book 3 and introducing a new theme which connects to what has come before. Book 3 of the psalms is the emotional center, containing the most painful psalms of distress and reflecting a crisis over God's promises because of the experience of suffering and exile and the failure of the kingship in Israel. Psalm 89 rejoices in the greatness of God and the greatness of the promises of God to King David, then grieves over the fact that God has renounced his covenant and rejected his people. The psalmist's worst fears have come on him and on his community, yet he cries out to God to remember him, to remember them. But how will God do that if the kingship has failed and his blessings come to the people through the king? Psalm 90 responds to these concerns as it faces the suffering caused by sin with dogged realism and with confidence that God, the ultimate king, will be faithful to his promises. And it is led by a new voice in the Psalms, who is in fact an old voice. The one leading the congregation in song in Psalm 90 is Moses, the prophet through whom God delivered and established the nation of Israel. This is the only psalm attributed to Moses, and it is significant that his voice should be heard when confronting these difficult questions. All of that helps us to feel the strange sweetness of the opening words of Psalm 90 in this first movement, which I've entitled Refuge. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our refuge, our home. The strains of the music resonate with serenity and strength. For a sustained moment, they cut through the angst and the agonizing over everything the people were suffering, prompting them to lift their heads, take a breath, look up, and be comforted. To look up by looking back. Moses had led God's people through years upon years of struggle and suffering and judgment in the wilderness. But when he looked back on their journey, what he fixated on first and foremost was God's faithfulness. Every day God had sheltered them with a pillar of cloud from the heat they faced and given them light and warmth every night with a pillar of fire. Every day he had provided bread from heaven. And looking, looking even further back beyond his own journeys, God had watched over, protected, and guided their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the generations. Their refuge was the permanent one. Before the mountains that Moses had led their forefathers through existed, before the world itself existed, God reigned undisputed. From one end of everlasting to the other, and of course everlasting has no ends, He is God. Which means, if He could be relied on in the past, 
He can be relied on now and will continue to be reliable in the future. This is the God whom Moses claims a relationship with, the God he celebrates as a refuge for his people. The psalm was written to be sung in trying times, in difficulty and disaster. So when you picture the choir singing with Moses, whether it's comprised of the people he led through the desert, now on the verge of entering the promised land, or their descendants during the experience of being exiled from the promised land, don't picture well-dressed, well-rested, I am the head and not the tail, prosperity-looking people. Picture a choir of spent, weary travelers. Picture prisoners of war. Picture the persecuted church in the New Testament running for their lives yet singing, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Picture the persecuted church today in places like Pakistan and Ethiopia hiding and singing. But what about the pampered church? What about us? I mean, it's not at all that there is no suffering in the Western church or in the church here in Jamaica or even among us as a local church. It's that we live in, uh, in relative ease compared to what many of our brothers and sisters have faced throughout the history of the church and even now. But 2020 has shaken us. Several weeks ago when New Jersey in the States was hit particularly hard by the pandemic, I was in touch with one of the pastors of a sister church we have there. And he was just explaining to me and just sharing with me that he had to be comforting a widow within his church. She had lost her husband suddenly. You know, I mean, just a matter of days, uh, he got ill with COVID and she couldn't even be there you know, with him in, in, in his last moments. And that's one of the ways this pandemic has brought a unique type of suffering to the world. You know, you have loved ones who are ill, and you have to stay away from them. I mean, as, as painful as death is, there's a blessing in being with our loved ones in the moment of their death. And this virus has robbed us of that. I don't know if you've lost any relatives or close friends, or if you've had friends who are threatened by it, but have recovered or are recovering. A brother who, who preached here in February had gotten in touch with us. His wife had reached out just a few weeks ago because he was very ill with covid they didn't know what it was at first. Uh, thankfully, he, he was hospitalized briefly, and they were able to treat him, and thankfully, he's recovering well. But I, I reached out to him, and I was like, Bridget, you give me a scare, dear, you know? Because suddenly, it came close to home when I heard that this friend of ours who we're building a close relationship with was ill and was seriously ill. We don't know what the coming days will bring with the rapid rise in cases locally. And, and it, to be honest, it feels like we're heading back into that kind of shelter-in-place experience that we had from March to hiding from the plague in our homes, at least those of us who are privileged enough to have homes to hide in. And it's depressing and discouraging, isn't it? It's ominous and uncomfortable. These are trying times. It's little wonder that some Christians that we heard about here in Jamaica and in other parts of the world felt, contempt, uh, sorry, felt co compelled to attempt to control this pandemic, to command it to cease, to blow it away. We don't want a refuge in suffering. We want a refuge from suffering. It's hard for us to understand ourselves to be simultaneously sheltered yet vulnerable. 
It seems to me that what we need for times like these is a faith that is more mature, less naive and more sophisticated, but not the sophistication that comes from having a university education, but one that has been cultured by a grounding in God's Word, in difficult texts like this one, given to us for difficult times. This song is for us, and this song is for now. This psalm is not naive. It's not romantic, viewing the world with rose-colored glasses. Much your points out. Psalm 90 opens with a statement of faith and goes on to expose the difficulties of holding it. That's what hits us in the, in the face immediately and perplexingly with the start of the second movement. Recognition. Verses 3 to 6. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 3. You return man... To dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. The only way you're going to be able to make sense of these stark and sobering words following the celebration of security that this psalm began with is to understand the setting that it was forged in. Some commentators think that the background to this psalm was likely the events of Numbers chapter 20, the deaths of Miriam and Aaron, Moses' siblings, and Moses' banishment from entering the promised land after he disobeyed God. But even the wider setting of Moses' often tragic experience in leading the people from Egypt to the edge of the promised land would be relevant here. And how he speaks in these verses reaches back to the beginning of tragedy for all mankind. Verse 3 echoes the curse of Genesis 3. And verse 5 recalls the flood of Genesis 7 as they lead us to a sobering recognition. We are dust. We are like the grass in the desert which springs up with the dew of the morning, full of life, bursting with hope, but by evening is withered and lifeless. A process that we can now observe in a few seconds using time-lapse photography. We are frail and we are temporary. Our lives are fleeting. It's as if Moses was looking back at Methuselah who lived for nearly a thousand years and saying, even such a life is like a single day or even a few hours in the night to the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. But our frailty and our transience is not just a fact. The modern secular view of things accepts death as a fact of living in this universe. I mean, death sucks, but that's life, and we're going to do everything we can to hold it off with science. But the Bible never reasons that way. What these verses describe is a sentence. Death is a tragic consequence of sin. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Decay and disease are not native to this world. As natural as they may seem, they are invaders that we opened a door for. The backdrop here is God's judgment on mankind. Moses is clear that God is acting in our demise, but he neither accuses God nor dispassionately accepts our fate. Instead, he leads the congregation to lament their state. This is not okay. We were made for fellowship with the everlasting God, but we have fallen so far from that. 
the transience of our lives is a tragedy. Disaster and danger and suffering are moments for feeling, being humbled by, and mourning or frailty. Just in the past several days, we were brushed by Tropical Storm Laura, which did much more damage than we experienced in Haiti and in the Dom Rep. The storm resulted in 31 deaths in Haiti and 4 in the Dom Rep. And then it strengthened rapidly into a Category 4 hurricane and plowed a furrow through Louisiana, killing six people and doing substantial damage in parts of Texas and Arkansas. Jamaica experienced three, thankfully, minor earthquakes in the last week. And every day the media has been tallying the alarming rise of COVID cases here. I don't know if you're like me, because kind of around 7 p.m. I start to tune in. It's like, okay, what's the update today? And you're listening, and if you miss it, you're going online to try to figure out what was the number. Because that number triggers something in our hearts, doesn't it? The media has been tracking also the impact on health workers and others on the front lines who are sacrificing to serve us. And further from home, but still close to the hearts of many, Friday night brought the news of the surprising and tragic death of the actor Chadwick Boseman from colon cancer at age 43. What in the world is going on? I mean, it's, it's said somewhat in jest, but I've heard many people from many circles be like, look, we just need to reset 2020. The author C.S. Lewis wrote, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our current crisis is meant to be a merciful moment of recognition. Hurricanes and earthquakes, pandemics and cancer confront us with our smallness, the same vulnerability lamented in Psalm 90. We easily think so often and so highly of ourselves. It's, you know, we have this impression that we have most things under control and we're arranging the pieces to make our mark on the world. But we should remember that we'll be gone in a moment. It was really interesting reading some of the news articles reflecting on the impact that Chadwick Boseman had on people. And just all these people kind of saying to themselves, Chadwick Boseman, through his acting in Black Panther, showed me that I'm a superhero, that I can be great. Yet the problem is Chadwick Boseman, through his death from colon cancer, showed us that we are all like Chadwick Boseman. We are all passing away. If we thought we were unstoppable, we should humbly acknowledge that we have been stopped. God has stopped us and is detaining us so that he might serve us. So our first concern ought not to be, how can we get on with our lives as quickly as we can? How can we get back to normal? What we need most right now is not resourcefulness, the ability to see and seize the opportunity in the midst of tragedy. What we need most right now is recognition, the humility to receive instruction in the midst of tragedy. Moses now foregrounds the judgment of God that has been the backdrop of these last few verses. He has led the choir to recognize and respond to their frailty with mourning, and now they are prepared and postured to face the reason for it, wrath. Look at verses 7 through 11. The intensity of the music rises in verse 7. 
For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Wrath. I mean, that's an uncomfortable word, isn't it? That's not politically correct. But the reality is vastly more uncomfortable. Moses led the people of Israel safely out of Egypt, yet none of the adults who came out made it into the promised land with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Because of their unbelief, because of their grumbling and complaining, they were struck down by plagues, consumed by the fire of God, swallowed by the earth, poisoned by snakes. Those who sang this psalm after the exile had seen God's wrath poured out on their nation when they were conquered by Babylon, and war back then was messy. It didn't didn't happen quickly. Sieges took months and years, and people would starve in that time, and people would do things they never ever thought they would do. They had seen famine and disease. These are uncomfortable stories. But we ought not to misunderstand God's wrath. It's not like a volcano, indiscriminate and unpredictable. He's not moody and he's never out of control. God's wrath is more like a laser, powerfully focused at its target, aimed precisely where it ought to be. And we're told what is attracting God's wrath in verse 8. You have set or iniquities before you or secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses is leading the choir to confess that God sees all of their sins, even the ones they would try to hide, even the ones that they themselves cannot see are revealed in the light of his presence. This is the reason for the curse, the reason for God's judgment and wrath, the reason that our lives are frail and fleeting. This psalm has a consistent concern with the measure of our lives. It has already compared them to the eternal God. No, this stanza sings mournfully of the sadness of aging and of our final exhale, lamenting the shortness of our lives and the fact that even if we live a little longer than most, our years are marked by pain and toil and struggle. They pass quickly and then we pass away. Our short lives are lived in the shadow of God's deep displeasure at sin. And even those of us who are aware of that never fully appreciate it. We don't fear God nearly enough. It's as if the choir is looking to God and singing to each other the question, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? But at this point, you might protest. I mean, this is a very uncomfortable characterization of God, isn't it? And this is an uncomfortable characterization of our lives. I mean, it's bad, but come on. It sounds dreadful. It sounds deeply pessimistic. And what kind of relationship is this that God's people have with him? How can they, in one moment, celebrate him as their refuge, and a few lines later say, we are terrified by your wrath? That doesn't sound emotionally healthy. I mean, wouldn't we be better off avoiding God altogether and fending for ourselves? You might protest even further. Isn't God love? I mean, John 3.16 and all. What about Jesus? Isn't this why Jesus came? How can God's people still be under God's wrath? After all, didn't we sing that this morning? No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace. I mean, perhaps this psalm is just outdated. Maybe these songs are just meant to be left there as relics. There's another singer 
whose voice we must hear. But I've kept him waiting in the wings until now. We need to hear his voice because this is his song. And we'll never make sense of it and hear its sweetness without him. We need to hear his voice because he is the one who brings us into this song that we so desperately need right now. He is, of course, Jesus. The Psalms are supremely his songs. His voice has already been singing in and through Moses. If Moses was, as the superscription of this psalm tells us, the man of God, appointed by God, honored by God, faithful to God, then Jesus is all that and more so. He is the better and greater Moses, leading his people out of slavery, through exile, and leading us into song in the midst of our suffering. Moses prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up for your prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So let's listen to him sing this song. He's been singing from the very beginning of this psalm. When we listen to Jesus sing this song, we hear the voice of the one whose natural habitat from everlasting was with his father. And who, when he took on flesh, continued to take refuge in him. We hear the one who humbly embraced the frailty, the weakness, and the transience of being human, even to the point of death. But how does the one who became human in every way, but without sin, sing this third movement? We, right now, are staring into the face of a love that almost defies belief. Jesus sings this section of the song as our substitute and in solidarity with us. For us, instead of us, he was brought to an end by his father's anger. When this psalm in verse 11 asks, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? He is the only one who can raise his hand truly and say, I do. I have. He knew what he was facing on our behalf. He agonized over it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went to the cross, bearing all our sins, all the sins that were rightfully attracting God's wrath, and, absor and absorbed all of God's wrath that we deserved. He who feels it, knows it. It is in him, hidden in him, that we can rightfully claim a relationship with the everlasting God and celebrate and be comforted by the refuge that he has always been for his people, even while we walk through the suffering of this uncertain time. And if you are not in him this morning, if you have not turned from every other refuge and trusted in Jesus, you can today. We would be honored to walk with you as you do so and to answer any questions that you may have. So please don't hesitate to speak to me or to Sheldon or to Sean, these men you've seen this morning after the service. It is in Jesus that we can face our mortality with humility, yet without hopelessness. As believers, we still sin, and sometimes grievously so. Even now, He still stands in solidarity with us, advocating for us before the Father. It is in Him that we can face our sin without making excuses for ourselves and without fear. And it is in Him we can face the judgment of God we experience with the rest of creation, an experience that we're particularly aware of this year. You see, even though Jesus faced God's wrath for us, he has not ended all of our suffering, not yet at any rate. Yes, we have been forgiven, but the curse we're reminded of in verse 3 has not yet been fully undone. We still suffer. 
We still toil. We still get sick. We still die. In Romans 8, 20 to 23, we're taught, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God is still expressing his anger at man's sin through the brokenness and the, inhospi- uh, and the inhospitality of the world that we all experience. Hurricanes and earthquakes, pandemics and cancer are the groaning of a world under judgment. John Piper explains well what has changed for us. The difference for Christians, for those who embrace Christ as their supreme treasure, is that our experience of this corruption is not condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The pain for us is purifying, not punitive. We groan with the created order. We are dismayed by the wrath of God. Singing this song will help us to lean into that. It is good for our souls. Here's some wisdom from Dane Ortland. The more robust one's felt understanding of the just wrath of Christ against all that is evil, both around us and within us, the more robust our felt understanding of His mercy. Psalm 90 serves us well. It reminds us that sin is deadly serious and that we have been redeemed at great cost. And that because of the mercy of Jesus, we can be confident that one day all suffering will end. And now at last we are ready to pray. Now this psalm will instruct us in how to pray in the midst of suffering. So we look at the final stanza, requests, verses 11 through 17. The last movement of this psalm is a series of confident and impassioned and hopeful requests. For Moses and for the original audience of this psalm, the boldness to make such requests came from their confidence in faith that despite the fact that they had not held up their end of the bargain, God would be true to his promises to them. He is the covenant-keeping God. In this section of of the song is filled with covenant language and cries to God using his covenant name. And it teaches us that prayer, in large part, is reminding God of His promises and His character. We who live on this side of the cross have a clearer picture of how God is able in integrity to keep His promises to unfaithful people. God's faithfulness to His promises comes to us through Jesus. He fulfilled all of God's demands on our behalf and has secured all of God's promises for Himself. We are in Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be in Christ. We are in Him, so we receive all the benefits that are due to Him. Jesus prayed these prayers during His earthly sojourn and in the midst of His suffering. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. And now... 
Jesus leads us to pray with him, to pray in him, and to pray through him. It was especially striking to me that in a psalm given for times of suffering, the first request here is not, make it stop, but make me wise. Effectively, make it worthwhile. In verse 12, we're taught to pray. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to live well out of an awareness of the brevity of life. Teach us to be focused but not frantic and fearful. Teach us to pray that we acknowledge that the wisdom needed to live a, a worthwhile life is not native to us as fallen human beings. We, in fact, tend towards folly. Our instincts and our impulses are not to be trusted. Wisdom is skill in godly living. One of my favorite definitions is, wisdom is knowledge applied so that we do the right thing at the right time with the right motive in the right way. The wisdom we need must be given to us. One aspect of the wisdom that we can learn is embracing the fact that life is hard. You see, we're wired to seek our comfort, and so we tend to whine when things get difficult. Simply embracing the difficulty of life in a fallen world helps us to suffer well. God is at work in us through suffering. It is wise to stop expecting our exile to be hospitable. It is wise to receive God's blessings with gratitude, but to stop expecting to build our own little kingdoms here. Will you pray this prayer? When we do, God's faithful response is to give us Christ. He increasingly gives us Jesus' heart so that our behaviors increasingly flow from and reflect Jesus' passions and priorities and perspectives. He is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. And we gain wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit as we are increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. Suffering is not meant to be enjoyable, so it is right that we should cry out for it to end. The second request gives voice to that desire. We pray that the same one who returns us to the dust in judgment would return to us in compassion. That he would return and show us mercy. There is nowhere else for us to turn, and God is eager and delighted to show mercy to his people. How long sounds like just this plea. It sounds like you're just desperate and tired, but it is in fact a faith-filled question because it comes from the expectation that our suffering will end. Verses 14 and 15 add two more requests. Our prayer is not just end our suffering, but be our satisfaction. That's what it means to make God our dwelling place. The world might look at God and say, just leave me be in a man. But we who have tasted of the goodness of Christ cry, satisfy me. For us as believers, God is not like a bomb shelter that we only visit if things get really rough. He's like a fully furnished home, a place where we're glad to live. For many saints who are walking through suffering, these prayers for restoration that God would make us glad for as many days and years as he has afflicted us can seem too good to be true. But for God, they are not good enough. He will go above and beyond this request. Derek Kidner points out, the New Testament, incidentally, will outrun verse 15's modest prayer for joys to balance sorrows by its promise of an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
God doesn't have it in mind to balance the scales, saints. He plans to overwhelm us with blessings forever. He has rescued us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The psalm concludes with a cascade of magnificent requests that God would display his saving acts to us and to our children, that in place of anger, God's favor would be upon us, and that God would make our daily work matter for eternity. As I prepared this message this past week, I was thinking about how this psalm steadies us for the upcoming election. Many of us here have a keen interest in politics. I am privy to WhatsApp discussions back and forth. But probably more so in policy. We watch and we weigh questions about the future and our hopes rise and fall based on what we see. Even with the calling of this election at this time, there has been so much second guessing of the decision and great concern for what the next several weeks will bring with a nomination day where you see people all out in the street, no mask or nothing. With an election day coming up, what's going to happen in the next weeks and months? And what will this election result mean? Will it put us on a path towards a better future? Will we be led by self-sacrificing nation builders or by self-enriching thieves? When we, with all of God's people, sing, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, we remind ourselves that our future does not ultimately depend on any election. Not the one here and not the one in November in the States. Thankfully, our fate is not in the hands of either party. Our future has been secured by Christ and is secure in Christ. That frees us now to engage in the political process without pinning our hopes on it. The days to come will bring their measure of suffering and success, but we can look to God to establish the work of our hands. The prayers given here in Psalm 90 are bold prayers. They are consequential prayers. This is how Jesus leads us to seek shelter in God, our Father, in the midst of suffering. We don't just have to hang in there. I must confess that I've been saying that far too often these days. How are you? But I'm hanging in there. We're not meant to merely survive these times. There is meaning in the madness. There is wisdom to be learned in in this moment. There is satisfaction and safety to be found in the midst of suffering. So the question is, will you join in this song? It's not the only song around, and it's not a popular one. Nobody's making dubs out of this. There are other songs which claim to offer hope in one party or the other, or in one leader or the other. Sweet songs in bitter times. Others look at these difficult days in the uh, others look at these difficult days, kind of look them in the face and tragically sing, We will be stronger. Convinced that with unity or resilience will carry us through these times. But that is short-term thinking and unenlightened optimism, undisturbed by the wisdom of this psalm. Our lives will fly by and we will all die. And there is no refuge from God's wrath except the one that God himself has made for us in Jesus. Will you humbly and soberly acknowledge our frailty and the rightness of God's wrath? Will you lament with the Son of God who took all our sins on himself and faced that wrath so that we could cry out to God with confidence and claim covenant promises that are ours only and truly in Jesus? 
Will you proclaim the reliability of the everlasting God and take refuge in Him by crying out for His wisdom and His restoration? Will you make this song your song and sing it to your brothers and sisters and to the world in these uncertain times? If we will, this song will be for us a bittersweet soundtrack that strengthens our sober steps as we walk through the suffering of this fleeting life, looking to that great morning that is promised to all of us who eagerly await Jesus' return. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.